The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a missing machine gun changes the course of history, a lone astronaut faces down terrorists on the ISS, and the search for a missing woman uncovers a vast conspiracy. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we continue remembering Eric Flint, who passed away recently at the age of 75. Eric was the author of numerous novels across multiple genres and series, but he was best known as the creator of the Ring of Fire series, the best-selling alternate history of all time. Last week, several of Eric's friends and collaborators discussed the man, his work, and his legacy. This week, we bring you Bain publisher, editor-in-chief, and art director, Tony Weiskopf, in conversation with Griffin Barber as she remembers Eric. After her interview, we have compiled some clips of Eric's past appearances here on the podcast for you to enjoy. But first, the news. A new month means new hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up is The Crossing by Kevin Eikenberry. The Crossing is part of Eric Flint's A CD Shards universe, which includes the Ring of Fire series, though the novel is a standalone. When a squad of ROTC cadets training at Fort Dix, New Jersey in November 2008, find themselves transported to December 1776 and the days before the Battle of Trenton, they find a Continental Army in disarray and General George Washington contemplating the potential of a bleak future. To make matters worse, they've lost a modern M16 rifle to a roving Hessian patrol. Understanding the ramifications of such a discovery, the cadets have no choice but to report to General Washington. Without ammunition or their own meager supplies, can Cadet Sergeant Jameel Mason and his friends steal Washington's courage and set the infancy of the United States of America back on track? Next up, it's a near-future techno-thriller from Travis S. Taylor entitled Ballistic. A Russian ICBM site is attacked just north of the Ukraine border. The nuclear warheads are missing. A fire ravages a cosmonaut training facility in which five spacesuits disappear. A cache of detailed schematics of highly complex rocketry systems is discovered. It all points to the unthinkable. Someone, someone extremely well-funded, is taking aim at the International Space Station. But these Russian mercenaries aren't planning to bring the ISS crashing to Earth. They're hijacking it. The terrorists are untouchable in their orbital perch, but they have overlooked one crucial aspect of their intricate plan. That astronaut Major Allison Sims is on board the ISS, and you don't mess with American astronauts. And in trade paperback, Mike Coopery asks us to walk the mean streets of a colony world in Trouble Walked In. What begins as a routine missing person case quickly turns into something much bigger and more sinister. Cassandra Blake, an employee for the Ascension Planetary Holdings Group, the largest and most powerful corporation in Nova Colombia, has gone missing. It falls to Detective Ezekiel Easy Novak to find out why. Soon, Easy finds himself trying to unravel a conspiracy that may implicate not only Ascension, but the cult-like Cosmic Ontological Foundation and the highest echelons of the Terran Confederation itself. That's The Crossing by Kevin Eikenberry, Ballistic by Travis S. Taylor, and Trouble Walked In by Mike Coopery, all available now. And now, Eric Flint is remembered by Bain publisher, Tony Weiskopf in conversation with Griffin Barber. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Today we continue to remember my co-author, mentor, and friend, Eric Flint. No one, no single person has done more for more writers in our genre than Eric Flint. 
He was free with his time, his advice, and his encouragement for an entire generation of writers, including me. I am joined today by Bain Books publisher and editor, Tony Weisskopf, who knew Eric from the publication of his first novel, Mother of Demons, and through all the years since. We both have stories to tell our audience, I'm sure, but I'm particularly interested to know more about those early days, as I've only known Eric for the last dozen years or so. So welcome, Tony, and uh, thank you for participating today. Can you give us some, the skinny on those early days? Uh, well, I, it, it's um, people have asked me about um, Eric's um, career and biography, and I was looking back um, on my Rolodex, and you know, I have, I have a Rolodex. <laughs> so one of the things about Rolodexes, right, is that they, you know, they're history, um, and uh, I have Eric's shop phone number and his hours written in on my card for Eric Flint, right? He worked from 3.30 to midnight. <laughs> so, so I knew when I could call and what I couldn't call. Um, and I obviously felt free to call him at the shop because, <laughs> because I had that number, right? Um, so um, what, what's, what's sort of hard to, um, to take in is that Eric did all of this as essentially his third career. Um, that he didn't start becoming a professional writer until his 50s. Um, and, uh, and he had a whole lot of life experience <laughs> you know, that went into the works, um, but also that went into um, uh, his professional relationships with Bain. Uh, um, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he knew about contract negotiations, he knew about corporate structure, um, and he knew about deals. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why Bain, although ideologically Jim and, and Eric were, were uh, you know, not close, but, <laughs> but why in practice it turned out to be such a great um, fit for both of both of them, and and, and for and, and and for me continuing on after um, after Jim Bain passed away, um, is is that we understood um, we stood we understood what what a deal was, um, and we uh, um, and we both all sides trusted each other, um, and that was a very very comfortable relationship from the very beginning. Um, in my um, uh, in my remembrance for Locust magazine, and there are a bunch of nice remembrances over there at Locust. Um, <clears throat> um, I, I talk about um, acquiring Mother of Demons, which was uh, submitted by um, Eric's longtime agent, Shauna McCarthy. And um, uh, I, uh, I was, you know, I was the younger editor. I was, and so I was looking for, you know, material in our, uh, in our submissions. Um, and I was thrilled when I read Mother of Demons, like, oh, this is, I like this one, this is good. Um, and I had, and so I recommended it uh, to Jim, uh, but I just say it kind of, you know, bogs down a little bit. There's a lot of, you know, philosophical back and forth. And Jim was like, nope, no, it's got to stay in. It stays in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but that was, a, that was, and I think that was part of why Eric felt comfortable here with us because we were comfortable with the philosophical stuff <laughs> that was going on in the middle of this planet adventure with, with aliens and all kinds of cool things. Um, and, uh, and he understood that we weren't going to mess with him um, and his writing um, unnecessarily. Well, one of the stories that Eric used to tell me was about how he had a, a knockdown, drag out philosophical debate with Jim uh, in those early days that kind of set the standard and, and both of them kind of went away, went away going, oh, this is going to be awesome because we are going to be able to engage <laughs> on stuff and, and argue and, and you know, uh, uh, get to the meat of it, which is something always Eric always kind of treasured was if you could discuss something uh, without becoming personally uh, hurt over it, uh, he was he was a fan of you from there. Um, oh, yeah. And that is yeah. one of the things he, he described about Jim as well, whom I've never got a chance to meet, uh, saying that, yeah, there was a couple of phone conversations where it was like, uh, it was very intense. But then thereafter, it was, it was, there was an understanding that, hey, we can disagree and yet have this trust between us. Yes, ab ab absolutely. Um, and then, of course, when, uh, 
when uh, we when we did Bane's Bar, uh, which was totally Jim's baby, um, you know, Eric was all over it. You know, it was uh, it, it was a perfect um, place for Eric to be able to engage in these nice meaty discussions, um, and Jim too. Um, and and Jim was perfectly happy giving Eric a forum to do that. Right, even though they didn't disagree, you know, they, even though they didn't agree on politics, that that they were that uh, they were both comfortable, you know, being in the same living room talking, right? <laughs> you know? um, and uh, you know, one of the great things to come out of that was the Bain Free Library. Um, I mean, it, it, Eric's prime palaver there, where he talks about this is the rationale for libraries, and this is the rationale for this particular library, and this is why it works. And I'm going to show you with numbers. Right? I mean, it, it's, it, it's extremely detailed. It's extremely well thought out. And it is, you know, it exemplifies Eric's mode of discussion, um, you know, when, when, he, when he was on the bar or, you know, at a convention or you know, wherever. Um, and, uh, and it works, right? I mean, we've... we've We've been selling we've been selling ebooks since 1999. I'm not sure exactly when the bar came up, but you know, so we're talking over 20 years now, um, and you know, we still have about 40, 35, 40 works in there. They change out, um, and uh, um, it still works to sell books, right? Um, and and Jim and Eric, you know, both were passionate um, believers in in, in ebooks and in selling books and in spreading the uh, the reach of the science fiction author. Um, so and didn't didn't he have a part of the the DRM free kind of thing as well that uh, that Bain uh, championed? exactly sure how much um, Eric was pushing there or not. Um, I really wasn't on the bar much at that point. Um, somebody had to read, you know, the books, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, um, I, I, I'm sure that Eric was part of the DRM discussion and, you know, the, the DRM is ridiculous. It's pointless. It's stupid. It, it makes, and, and, you know, for me, it, it's, it's a money drain and it's a waste and I hate that. Uh, so <laughs> my, my cheap soul rebels, at it, but, but it's an insult to the readers too. And neither Eric nor Jim talked down to their readers. I mean, you know, we would try to continue that. Um, yeah, and that was that was kind of what I think Eric was kind of. Uh, he certainly was uh, good with it because it was like a library. Even if you steal it, you're likely to buy it if you liked it. So. You're yeah. likely to buy it later, right? I mean, you right. know, pre you know, the, the story that I tell is that when when I was in high school, I would go to my local um, Anderson's bookstore in Huntsville, Alabama, and I stood in the bookstore and I read the latest Heinlein that came out. Right? It took me a couple times coming back, but you know, they got no money for me for that. <laughs> And yet, you're, and now yeah. you have all those on your shelves, right? I, not only do I have them all on my shelves, but I bought books from the Highline Estate. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. the karma accrues. Dude, it does. Well, that's it's, neat. Uh, so, the Mother of Demons was, uh, was it 99? Uh, uh, I think it was 98. Now you're making me feel old. But yes, um, it, it, it was a while ago. Right. Uh, yeah, and and that was his that was his first his first novel. I think he'd had one published story before that, um, that being his Writers of the Future winner. But he came to us such a again that life history, right? You know, he knew what he wanted to do, um, and he knew the stories that he wanted to tell. And uh, so, <clears throat> um, so it, he wasn't your typical newer writer. Um, right. And that he, he came to us already re really very polished. And what I came to appreciate, especially in these later years, working with him um, to develop new um, new projects was what a great editor he was. I mean, he had just not, not only did he know how to tell his stories a lot. Yeah, there are a lot of people who can do that, but right. he could take he could take a look at other people's stories and help you tell yours. I mean, what, was that your experience with? You oh know, yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah. Especially on uh, Mission to the Mughals, it was you know uh, basically we sat down and and hammered out the outline, and then I wrote it. But he came through afterwards and and kind of fixed a few things. But the certainly in the outline, he's like, well, you got to have this payoff, and we got to have these particular characters, and those characters have to be grounded in reality, and preferably uh, in particular with the 
1632 stuff, they have to be uptimers because that's the best point of view for the reader is yeah. the uptimers seeing the, the challenges between them all. So uh, really, really uh, fascinating how and those skills transferred to a certain degree to, to everybody he worked with uh, to different degrees. And, but his, you know, his uh, eye for people that were going to actually pay off. Uh, and, you know, if, if you look at, you know, uh, working with Chuck, uh, working with Paula and Gord and yeah. you know, all of these different people that have gone on to do other things and uh, bigger things. And then, you know, in, in the very inception, you know, one of the things he always talked about in working with me was how much he learned in working with others. So talking about uh, David Drake, uh, how much he learned about story structure and how to do that properly uh, and how to execute, you know, like it's, it's just in these smaller details, maybe he wouldn't have done it that way, the way that David kind of directed him to do, uh, but that he like saw immediately the value of what he was doing. Um, uh, really fascinating the way he uh, was able to, especially because he was what 52, 53 by the time he starts working with David, but he's able to learn, you know, as I get older, I, I'm harder, I'm, I'm harder <laughs> headed. No, I don't, I don't learn as quickly. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody does. Right. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. yeah. Working, working with David, that, that was part of uh, uh, the, uh, what Jim called sending people to famous author school. Right. Um, is, and, and that was, you know, Jim had at that point um, really perfected the Bain collaboration. Um, and he based it on Aristotle's poetics and he based it on working with uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell um, and, and seeing the input that Heinlein had given to them on their collaborations. Um, so um, that method of uh, the famous author writes the outline, the junior author uh, who, has, who shows great potential fleshes it out, and then the senior author goes through and does those, you know, just puts in, um, Ringo calls it putting in the, uh, the magic fairy dust, right? <laughs> you know, you know just, just those, those little strokes um, that, uh, that illuminated and elevated. Um, and so Jim wanted to send Eric to famous author school, right? Um, you know, after Mother of Demons, and um, I think, you know, but probably, I think this was before 1632 had come out, um, sending him, uh, so, so letting him work with David Drake, again, not necessarily a pairing that you would have oh, yeah. <laughs> thought would work, yeah. um, but did beautifully, right? And, and, to, and to both authors, um, great happiness. Um, um, the Belisaria stories are just so much fun and so good. Um, and I would recommend, by the way, we did a audio drama of one of Eric's uh, portions of um, the Belisarius series. Um, and that, that audio drama is available at Bain.com. Um, and I think, I think also on Audible too. Um, so uh, uh, you, should, you should check that out. It's, it's a great introduction to, uh, to that series. So. Well, and they both have such an appreciation and understanding of history as a living thing. You know, yes. And when you get in there, and that's what the Belisarius stuff is all about. It, it, it's, uh, you know, what would happen if uh, really neat, neat stuff that came out of that. Um, very fascinating. And again, it's, it's funny that the, he calls it the famous, uh, Jim had called it the famous uh, author school. because You look at it and down the road and, and the number of people that have done the same thing. And we, we talked to David already about this, but, you know, David was already an established, uh, David Weber was already an established, uh, well-established author by the time uh, Eric came on the scene, and then they they're kind of dance and negotiation about how they were going to whose whose series are we going to work in first, yeah. and how that, <laughs> how that came about and the the 1633 thing. And one of the neatest things in that conversation uh, for me was, uh, you know, Eric at first was like, no, not Simpson. He's a bad guy. Right. And David's like, no, he's not. He's, he's just, he's waiting to be saved. You know, he's waiting to be shown in a different light. Right. And, and Eric was like, hell yeah. And let's do that. <laughs> and you know, that, that kind of uh, synergy between, uh, you know, authors, especially with David Weber and, and Eric, was really neat to, to read because, 
you may not enjoy everything that Eric wrote. You may not enjoy everything that David wrote, but every once in a while you get to read something that they both worked on and wow, it's better than the sum of its parts uh, in, in many cases because they play off each other's strengths, especially that particular partnership given that it, was, it, it lasted for so long and uh, it was kind of a neat, uh, a neat thing to witness for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it was. They they both enjoyed playing in playing in each other's universes, and and and, and I think um, again, this is sort of the Bane way of collaboration, right? Is that there's a little bit of ego on the line. Um, is that you know the, the the senior partner wants to you know this is you know this is what a novel looks like, and the junior partner is and let me see what I can contribute here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I don't want to let you down. Yeah, yeah. Don't, I mean, not only do I not want to let you down, but I want to show you what I can do. Yeah. Um, and and I think in the best of them that that you know that really really works. Um, um, that you know you do get more than the sum of the parts. Um, you get a, you get a different uh, you get a different writer. You know who's the ampersand. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it works. And it works. Um, there is there is one um, anecdote that I'd want to tell that 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 Eric would tell on himself about um, uh, uh, about him and Jim and sort of their their relationship. Um, uh, Eric, I think, uh, visited the North Carolina um, offices, and uh, so Jim wanted to you know treat him right, take him out to a really nice restaurant. So took him to a fancy steakhouse, you know, with the linen napkins and the sommelier and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so Eric uh, looks at the menu and uh, Jim is like, you can have, you know, have anything you want. So, um, you know, Jim orders probably the surf and turf and Eric orders the meatloaf. <laughs> and Jim is like, come on, man, you can have anything you want. You know, you, this is, you know, this is on me. And Eric is like, but but I like meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I just want the meatloaf. <laughs> Leave me alone. I want my meatloaf. Right. I just want the meatloaf. Um, so, so that was that was that, that was Eric and Jim. <laughs> right. That was Eric and Jim. But they they had it. They had a great working relationship, and and I think Eric and I had a, had a, had a good working relationship too. Um, I really enjoyed. Um, spending time with him and talking with him and hanging out with he and, and, and uh, with him and with Lou. Um, we got to do the uh, one of the writers workshop cruises together that uh, Shaheed Mahmood had organized and that was fun. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen him at many, many conventions. And, you know, he was one of those uh, just peripatetic um, uh, authors, you know, he drove all over the place, went to millions of conventions. I mean, his his career was jam packed. <laughs> you know? um, well, that's the thing, people know. You know, uh, certain complaints are lodged against some uh, large name authors uh, about just not producing stuff, and that was never an issue with Eric. <laughs> no, no. And despite no. the fact that he's going to all the conventions, he's doing all those things. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he had what seemed like endless energy, and um, I, I guess which is why it, just, it, it, it comes as a shock um, to have it just stop. Um, I mean, it, it, uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise, right? You know, I, I saw him in the hospital, in the hospital, in a, in a hospital gown with, you know, oxygen in his nose years, you know, a couple of years ago back <laughs> at the, in, in Utah when um, it turned out, um, uh, you know, the, the, the elevation got to him and uh, he was having heart problems then. So it shouldn't have been a surprise, but, but somehow it was. Some people, of, some people are also just incredibly tough. I mean, he, he went through cancer and, and beat that. Uh, beat the snot out of it, came back, and then he had some other issues, and, you know, he, he, he was definitely a fighter, so yeah, you, you get the, well, obviously, he's, he could be sick, but obviously, he's going to make it, because, you know, <laughs> I mean, he, he, the, the stories of kind of, uh, of survival just from his youth, you know, one of the things about uh, Eric that he, uh, he took individuals as individuals. Yeah. Which for a communist is kind of like, what? 
how would you dare <laughs> do that? But he was a working class communist. He was not some intellectual ivory tower communist or socialist or whatever you want to call it. Trotskyite or yeah, yeah. And, and he he kind of varied his definition as as depending on who he was talking to and how much shock value he wanted to throw at you but <laughs> his you know he always took every individual as an individual and part of that was I, i'm going to stun you with a, like a presentation of myself as communist uh, especially in talking to a cop the first time the very first time that he was we hung out was in world fantasy columbus He's, uh, we're with, uh, it's uh, Alistair Kimball, myself, uh, and we're sitting at the table talking to Mike Resnick and hanging out with him. It's like, wow, we're hanging out with Mike Resnick. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Eric was there as well. And I hadn't read any of his stuff at the time, but uh, he, he's sitting between the FBI agent and the cop. And he's just <laughs> kind of grinning like, <laughs> You guys have no idea. And then he drops this, you know, this bomb on both of us. And we're like, yeah, we know. You know? <laughs> and uh, he was just nonplussed by the fact that, you know, again, he was, again, somebody who can take me as I am. I'm going to take them as they are. Uh, as long as they're not just a, an absolute blithering idiot and, you know, or getting violent. But, you know, he, he had reason to not like the FBI. He had definite reason not to like cops and cops in California in particular, uh, based on his lifetime in L.A. and and or the time he spent in L.A. and being chased around and then running for the on the socialist ticket in uh, Alabama. Uh, all those things he you know <laughs> he had lived a very uh, unique life uh, and he had he still managed to do that without much resentment. Uh, and yeah. certainly no resentment towards individuals that might be perceived as, uh, you know, the, the enemy of his uh, ideology or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, somebody really ought to do a Freedom of Information Act uh, request and see what his FBI file looks like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just for fun. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, he, he had that, he, he did have that ability. And it's a very science fictional culture thing, too, is to take you as you present yourself, right? And, you know, for better or worse, right? That means if, you know, if you fuck up and fuck up, <laughs> you're judged, you're judged on, on what you do, not on what class uh, you, you belong to. Right. Um, and um, that was very engaging and, and, and I think very rewarding for him. I mean, he, you know, he was obviously interested in, in just a huge range of people. Um, that was... That was one of the things that came about yesterday or uh, during our conversations earlier about the uh, uh, the expanse of 1632 and the number of authors. Because one of the things he said at its core, it's it's a universe, and you don't have a universe without multiple perspectives on what the, what it means to be in that universe. And that's yeah. why 1632 works with so many co-authors, is because everybody brings their unique perspective and how they want to look at stuff and how they think about things. And that's not something, and again, this is what Eric said, that's not something I could do. If I had, you know, hundreds of lifetimes, I'd never be able to do anything other than as Eric Flint. And, and that it takes a certain generosity of spirit, right, to welcome other people into the universe that you created, right? Um, and that's, uh, and, you know, and Eric had that in spades. Um, and David uh, Weber talked about that, too. He's like, yeah, I couldn't do what he did. <laughs> and, and you know and david has has uh, you know invited invited certain select few people right. into the universe right? Right. but 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 uh, you know but hundreds of people have written in 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 the 1632 universe and that's that's you know that's special um one thing that i have been asked um is um uh, are, are there books um, in the pipeline from Eric? And the answer is yes. Um, my last email from him a week before he passed away was a manuscript delivery. Um, so um, we do have uh, new works of his that have already been delivered um, and are, are already on the schedule for um, 
2023 and going into 2024. Um, and uh, there are a number of collaborative projects that were well along the way that will also be uh, coming out. Um, so there will be more uh, of, um, uh, of Eric and, and Eric's works um, coming out over the next two, three, four years. Um, there, there, he, was, he was very, very active, you know, right up to the end, um, talking with his collaborators and, and, and uh, work, working on his solo projects. And so, um, you know, there's, there's going to there's gonna be more Eric, and that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's that it hopefully will we'll all serve as legacy. Uh, and continue to be able to carry that forward. And, you know, we talked about, he never used to use the term uh, rising tide raises all boats, but pretty much everybody associated points at him and go on, here's the guy who rose the tide the most for the most boats. You know, it, it just, uh, it, you know, he's a, he was a, a gentle tsunami in that regard, just bringing, <laughs> there's 200, 200 authors in the 1632 universe. Is it something? Yeah, I, 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 I haven't tried to keep track. It's, it's yeah. huge. So just, yeah, yeah, 200, 200 off, and that's just the sixteen thirty two universe. It's not counting right. his, his work with Alistair Kimball, uh, you know, Mike Resnick. He, he and Mike Resnick did stuff together, all uh, like at least three or four different projects, I think. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, just all the other folks that weren't necessarily, and so it runs the gamut. It runs the gamut from Mike Resnick to little old me to folks that you know just wanted to publish one short story, see if they could, and they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and, and people who are, you know, necessarily um, unlikely writers, people like Rick Boatwright, right, um, who were incredibly helpful um, as technical advisors to a host of, of people, not just Eric, but, but, but a lot of people behind the, behind the scenes, um, Rick helped out with, with technical consults. But Eric got him the writing credit, right? Why <laughs> you not? Know? And, and part of that was not able, not only that, but just encouraging Rick, because yeah. Rick had some really cool ideas. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it ever came, uh, came up to you or if he uh, ever got anywhere with it, but he was going to do like a, uh, a unicorn uh, modern military special ops thing. And like, I, I would have remembered that. <laughs> I, I, I love the idea. And maybe I'll talk to, to, to folks about it, but it was, it was an interesting, uh, you know, take on like the, the special ops combined with the Valkyries combined with the, the, the whole ethos of unicorns. I was like, Ooh, this is pretty wild. And he only, <laughs> he only needed, like, uh, he needed encouragement. He didn't need necessarily need, uh, uh, you know, he, he didn't think of himself as a great writer, but he got that encouragement from Eric and eventually from Karen Offord and a number of other people that, again, Eric had brought in yeah. uh, or encouraged and uh, helped develop. Yeah. Um, just amazing, the, the reach that he's had. Uh, and, and not just, uh, you know, in uh, the smaller circles of Bain, but just worldwide. I mean, the people that internationally that have read his books and, uh, and then gone on to actually be authors in the universe. It's neat. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think we've seen that in some of the the tributes um, that we've seen, you know, coming uh, on his passing. That you know his his uh, his loss is felt. Um, you know, it's uh, it is a loss. You know, you you can't you can't replace an Eric, right? Um, no. um, but what uh, what we can try to do is um, you know follow his path. You know, to be uplifters and not downbringers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it, and that is the thing is the for me is, is that it just uh, it's one of the best exemplars of of kind of how to be. Yeah. You don't have to agree with everybody. You don't have to be Mister Agreeable. You can be a crotchety guy, <laughs> uh, but be flexible in in how you take individuals. And yeah. you know, just because that person said something utterly stupid last week doesn't mean that they're utterly stupid right they, they, they may have they may have something to contribute right and they may have added just a bad day and you know whatever it may have been so again it, it was remarkable to me how much he he put into action uh things you know and not a religious man at all uh but he you know uh, in many ways very very much the uh the exemplar of you know how to be towards other people 
you know, let's lift them up, let's help them out, let's uh, be there for them. And again, he could not that he couldn't stop him. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I can't <laughs> get over what a stupid I can't help the kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I could just see him kicking a stone down the down the road, kind of thing. So uh, he uh, he had his moments of of ire and uh, temper. But, Me sure. <laughs> but he he was again. He just seemed to always kind of be ready to to help somebody out. Yeah. You walk the walk. Yes. And that's, you know, it's, it's not easy. It, it, it's not easy to do. Um, and it's certainly, certainly not easy to do while having such an incredibly active career. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and fan interaction too. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he not only made his uh, fans happy, he also, you know, incorporated uh, a lot of them into the family of the writing. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, you know, it was, it was a couple of steps from being, uh, oh, I'm a huge fan and I'm, I'm kind of an amateur historian to being, okay, you're <laughs> going to be right now. Kind of thing. So, always yeah. kind of impressive for me that the, the, the gamut, again, of, of people, you know, I talked about the cop and the FBI agent, but then you have the, uh, the literary uh, science fiction fan and gamer and Chuck uh, Chuck Gannon, you got uh, the historian David Weber and, and professional writer David Weber. You got the Vietnam veteran and lawyer and uh, David Drake. All of these people that all uh, really uh, enjoyed his company and, and wanted to work with him all the time. Uh, and literally that, that, that spectrum of politics and people was uh, a part of his firmament that he, uh, he enjoyed because it was, again, a way to test his ideas against the ideas of others uh, and uh, also to continuously refresh. You know, I, again, I, I'm approaching my 50th birthday this year. I can't imagine being that mentally flexible for that long all the way through and just being constantly uh, adapting without losing any um, or abandoning your moral precepts or anything yeah. like that. He just was always kind of, I'd like to test my ideas against yours. Let's see what's going on. I mean, the last argument I had with him was him telling me that Robert E. Lee was, is overrated. It's, he's overrated. I went, well, given the circumstances in which he was under, he was laboring under, I think he did a pretty good job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he's like, he's like I, I disagree. I, I think he did a pretty good job given the theater that he was faced with. He, wow, he just he was just overrated. Oh well, certainly at the end of his his career he was overrated because his own soldiers believed he could do anything. That wasn't the case, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, he, you know, he tested these arguments out on me because I remember him talking about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and again, it just kind of was one of those things that he enjoyed. He, he certainly enjoyed the conflict uh, between equals. Uh, he never put anybody down in my hearing. He never, you know, slammed on somebody because just because they had made an error or anything else like that. He was always like, hey, that's an interesting idea. That, that idea really lacks strength to hold up a piece of paper, let alone an argument. <laughs> you know, he would definitely let you know that your arguments were flawed. But he never thought that you were a flawed human being for having tried to present. Yeah. Um, neat. And, uh, no, this is you know this is this is a the, the, a mode that we should all sort of remember and uh, and and strive for. You know, it's getting more and more difficult, I think, in these times. But just to remember that yes, it is possible to be this way. Um, that you you don't you don't have to be put in put into modes that uh, other people. Um, are trying to shove you into, you can have that generosity of spirit while still being firm in your principles. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah. a, it's a great, it's a great legacy to leave us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss him. <laughs> I'm going to miss him a lot. Yep. Already have a couple of times, but I like, oh, I could just, uh, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. What you mean? <laughs> So, well, Eric, wherever you are, 
you are remembered. And uh, I hope you're watching us going, oh, I was wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> and sending us the encouragement that you can. <laughs> so. Hopefully, and calming people down. Hey, well, just calm down a little bit or just relax. <laughs> it's just an argument. It's just an argument. <laughs> I'm sure he's having conversations wherever he is. So one thing we didn't get to talk about was things like the cover behind me. Um, this is a Tom Kidd cover for, I believe, an anthology, Worlds of uh, Eric Flint, or yeah. mm -hmm. yep. the title. Uh, and the over the length of his career and the number of uh, covers that he had from various uh, artists, we, we haven't really talked about uh, Tom Kidd and uh, some of the other covers that he had. I, I appreciate you uh, kind of telling us some of those stories. Well, well, this this was uh, his collaboration with with Tom Kidd in the, in the 1632 universe um, was particularly close, um, and it was very much of the kind of interaction that we've been talking about. Um, uh, in, in this case, we uh, it was a collection of Eric Flint's short stories. Didn't write a lot of short stories, but there were enough for two volumes and, uh, and probably probably a third now. Um, and uh, it's been Bain's practice to have um, a, uh, a portrait of the author um, for, for the cover. And so Tom did, just did an absolutely beautiful job of, of that for, for, for this cover. Um, but, uh, but, that was, but that was planned, right? Um, Eric was notorious, notorious for delivering a manuscript at the absolute last possible second that our production department could get it before it was due to the printer. Um, he has um, uh, stretched um, and encouraged our production department, department to be more efficient uh, <laughs> than, uh, than we've had to in, in other cases. Um, uh, he made a point of uh, developing a personal relationship with all of our production managers. <laughs> So that he could find out the real deadlines, not the deadlines that the editors were telling him, but the actual deadlines. Um, and when it came to covers, this became interesting, right? Um, because ideally, you get the you get the manuscript so that you can give it to your your um, cover artist, and the and the cover artist will um, illustrate a, the a, a scene from the novel, or at least the theme of the novel. Well. Eric turned that on its head, right? He, he, he turned the, the, the late delivery into a virtue. Um, and what he would do for the Grantville Gazette covers is uh, challenge Tom to do a cover set in 1632. And then he would write a story to that cover. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> we got a lot of really cool, interesting, fun Eric Flint stories out of that. We got a lot of great covers from, from Tom Kidd out of that. Um, but uh, there was that element of, of uh, you know, Tom, Tom throwing down the gauntlet to, uh, to Eric. And say, Here, now, now do a short story. And of course, those short stories had to be produced really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, and they were. <laughs> right? uh, oh, definitely. And sometimes not so short either. Sometimes they were novella <laughs> length. Uh, he would uh, really be enamored of an idea that, that, you know, wasn't his, it just was Tom Kidd's scene. And it's like, okay, well, I got to build this out. And I had lots of fun. The, the, the last one was the, that I remember kind of vividly was the, the Hobbs, uh, you know, yes. having Calvin and Hobbs on the cover. I mean, that was really, really crazy uh, cool that he, and then he worked that into a story and, Right, kind of played with not only the the, the metaphor but the double entendre. I mean, it was it was it was very meta. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It uh, was, it was. But you still got a great story out of it, right? It wasn't all absolutely. nudge, nudge, wink, wink, in joke stuff. You could you right. could read the story without knowing any of that stuff, and it was a great story, right? Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, yeah. As you were saying, that takes uh, that that takes a certain kind of personality and a certain faith in <laughs> in your own yeah. talent, your own skills, um, to be able to play that kind of game. Um, Eric, and Eric, and I, the talent and skill of the artist. I mean, it's absolutely, a, lots of absolutely. trust there. He he. Oh, that was one of the things that we kind of came out of our uh, earlier conversations was you know amazing ability to build trust. Yeah. Uh, across you know, uh, all boundaries that would normally be thought of as, as like stone cold boundaries for this, this era. 
being able to talk to people and, and certainly a lesson I think everybody could take uh, from uh, the way he lived his life and the way what he wrote was, you know, uh, your, your boundaries are not permanent. You need to make them permeable without, without abandoning your principles but you can make them permeable so you can adjust and adapt to the best possible outcomes for everybody. And he kind of repeatedly did that. He, he, he did. And then he, and he enriched everybody around him by doing it. So again, we, uh, we raise a glass to you, Eric. We're, we're glad you were in our lives. So thanks. Well, thank you very much, Tony, for coming on today and uh, talking to us about Eric Flint. This has been the Bain Free Radio Hour with Tony Weisskopf and Griffin Barber. Next up, we bring you some clips of Eric Flint from previous episodes of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Maybe, you know, Eric, you wrote an introduction to this. Uh, maybe you or, or Walter Joy can bring us up to speed on, on what this is um, and what this project, the Grantville Gazette project, has, has wrought. Well, the, the magazine started uh, 2003, as I remember. What happened was that um, the third book we did in the 1632 series was the anthology Ring of Fire. And this was very unusual because normally with a series, they don't produce an anthology that quickly they wait till half a dozen novels are out. And then if there's enough popularity, then they'll, they'll produce a, uh, a uh, anthology. And when they do, the uh, stories are always, always done on commission. In other words, they're not accepting unsolicited manuscripts. The uh, editor asks specific authors to write stories for it. But we had had a lot of fan participation in building for 1632 and it continued on after the book came out. So I raised with Jim doing an anthology and we would set aside half the book for established authors like David Weber or Mercedes Lackey. Um, but the other half we would leave open for fans who wanted to submit stories and we would, we would pick them. And uh, over a hundred people submitted stories. And I wound up selecting nine of them and they appeared in that anthology. And it was very successful. That anthology has sold uh, that over $100,000 in royalties and anybody who knows anything about that's phenomenal, phenomenal and uh, royalties for any short story anthology. Um, and people kept writing. I mean, there's just a lot of fan fiction being produced. And so I raised with Jim, he said, hey, would you like to try the experiment of producing an electronic magazine where we would publish the best of these stories? And Jim thought it was an interesting idea, but he said he just didn't want to deal with the headache and hassle of running a magazine. So he said, but if you want, I'll lend you the money uh, enough to set it up. And then, you know, you just pay me back. Um, and that's how we did it. Um, and actually, I was able to pay him back quite quickly. Um, so the magazine, therefore, had been mine from the very beginning. And the first four issues of it, we did um, just kind of on a, you know, on the first nine issues. There was no regular publication schedule. And the, we did pay people for it, but it was semi-pro rates. It was kind of an occasional kind of a hobbyist thing, but uh, eventually we decided, now let's take this thing seriously. And so beginning in May of 2007, we began producing it on a professional basis. It has a regular publication schedule, comes out every two months. The rates paid to the authors uh, uh, fit the Science Fiction Writers Association criteria for professional rates. Um, you know, it's a pro magazine. And uh, I asked Paula Goodlett to be the editor of it, which she was for a number of years. Um, and then she was later replaced by Walt. So the magazine, beginning with, I believe it was the 10th issue in May of 2007 has been published professionally. And we are now almost, where are we at, Walt? My, I think we're at issue 90. We just put 96 to bed. Right. 
Hmm. So we're getting close to 100 issues. And, and what I then did, as I discussed with Jim, and, and Jim said, well, let's try putting one of these issues in a magazine out as a book, see what happens. So we did. Uh, the first one is done as a paperback. And it sold extremely well. And so we then did the next three the same way. We just take the existing issue of the magazine and just turn it into a book. Uh, and we did that with volumes one, two, three, and four of, of the Granville Gazette anthologies, which are published by Bain. Um, but at that point, we could no longer do that because the magazine was just out racing you know, any yeah, possibility yeah. Of, of, of any publisher keeping up with it. So since starting with volume five, we have uh, done each one of these volumes. They're best of. Basically, we go through about 15 issues in a magazine um, and select what we think are the best stories out of it. And, and then Bain Books publishes it as an anthology. One other, uh, one other historical... Um, uh, fact that you have to deal with in the book and you do deal with it is when they come across um slavery in new Amsterdam, and uh there's, there's good, a nice little section where um where our characters talk about this and and because they're going to decide what to do about it we got up timers and uh, down timers who are in counting a slave market basically yeah and not just in virginia it's, no, no, actually, there was a stretch of American history where there are more slaves in New York City than anywhere else. Uh, and in fact, um, um, the book Walter and I did, Council of Fire, actually takes it up more. Um, it's, it's actually more of a prominent uh, feature in that novel than it is in the one that's coming out two days from now. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's by the time most people become, most Americans become aware of American history, you're at the pre-revolutionary period. And then slavery's in the South and the North. Okay, you go back a little earlier enough. No, you had slavery, not in every colony, but you certainly did in New York. And not much earlier. There, yeah. was, there, was, there were slave auctions in Faneuil Hall in Boston in the 1750s. Slavery doesn't disappear from New England until just before the revolution. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the start of the, the people call the 1619 project. That's when the first slaves were brought over the United States in 1619 and weren't taken to the South. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, but this is the big dilemma for a, if you're from the future and you travel back to the past um, and you hit a historical circumstance that just morally outrages you, what, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. you're not going to be able to change the entire of society, right? So what, how, how are you going to deal with it? There are two of uh, the central hero of the whole series, Mike Stearns, is, is, is said on, on several occasions that the two great evils of that time, that he wants to, if not eliminate, at least cripple them, are uh, chattel slavery in the New World and the second serfdom in Eastern Europe. And in different ways, they're trying to deal with both of those issues to one degree of success or another. And um, the one thing is that in both cases, they're, they're cap because we're in the early 17th century, they're catching both the development of New World chattel slavery and the development of second serfdom in Eastern Europe pretty early. They're not in really entrenched yet. So uh, there are things that, that you know, can be done. Uh, but there's no magic wand either. Um, well, part of what happens in the whole series is that you have these uptimers who, who, who do carry modern um, ideologies and, and views and views of history and what they think of American history and they'd like to see things be done better and not all of them but most of them do and they try and to some degree they, they succeed in some cases they succeed quite spectacularly but there's also uh, first of all there's unforeseen consequences and then secondly there's uh, you know some things take time. I mean, there's no way around it. You're not going to make any quick changes. And and the issue in the new world is really, really thorny. It's, uh, it's interesting because the whole issue has flared up again in, in recent times over, you know, how to look at the, the old world colonizing the new world. And what makes it 
so difficult, and we're trying to get some of this across, at least in the book, is that to some degree, this is inevitable. I mean, you've got two continents or two hemispheres. One of which, for a whole variety of reasons, is much more populous and more developed technologically in all kinds of other ways that, that arrives in the new world. And there's going to be a huge impact on that society. Um, years ago, Steve Sappel was at that time an editor at um, Delray Books, asked me if I could write an alternate history where the Trail of Tears never happened. Um, and I said, yeah, if you let me start in the time of the Vikings. And he said, no, 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 I want something, you know, that takes place in the early 19th century. And I said, Steve, I can't do it. Because by the time you get to 1820, the demographic imbalance is so enormous that there's no way that, that Indians in the South are not going to get displaced. I mean, there's just no realistic way you can depict it not happening. There, there are ways it could have come out differently. Yes, there are ways it could have come out differently, but ultimately uh, the natives have to leave Mississippi. Right. What I did was propose a, a different way of dealing, which he liked, and that eventually became the novel um, 16, uh, 1812, uh, The Rivers War, followed by 1824, The Arkansas War, and Bain will be publishing the sequel to that, and, and uh, the rights are revert back, so Bain will eventually be reissuing those books. Mm. Uh, in fact, that will be the next book I start on after I finish the anniversary book uh, with David Weber. Um, but it's really difficult because, you know, it's intractable. There's no quick, easy solutions to any of these problems. And that's part of what we tried to, uh, Walter and I tried to convey in the book is that, yeah, a lot of stuff, really sh cruddy stuff was done. And, and a lot of that can, can be prevented or at least forestalled. But a lot of it, you know, it's it's going to be um, murky. I can see where interjecting the uptimers into into Ring of Fire makes it science fiction. I I understand that, but I think it's some. It's it is, for want of a better term, artificially induced alternate history, mm -hmm. but with all of the all of the all the downtimers in there and their their interaction and so forth. I think calling it alternate history is exactly correct. Um, sure. Why can't it be both? Um, no, it can be both. Yeah, yeah. Eric swings both ways. It could Eric be can both. answer for himself, of course, but I would say to that that the, uh, there is a lot of philosophical issues in the series about the fact that they are actually changing up time. Um, and what that will mean and and talking and there's a sense of awe and wonder that you, you really get from science fiction by that sort of talk and that sort of speculation and it infects how the characters act because they know what happened to them in the real history hmm. it, it's something you don't get in just straight alternate history as much right yeah. i mean i don't know if you would agree I with that, that eric yeah there's a different dynamic um writing the uh, uh the, uh, the, the, the title i call is trail of glory series but it tends to be called the sam houston series yeah as sam houston's the central figure in it um it's a different dynamic and, and and here's the tricky part um when you have a an historical period which is true of pretty much all of them that's far enough removed from our own um it's dramatically tricky to get modern readers to be able to um, 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 sympathize with um, people with time. Um, and it works in 1632 in that series because it's, it's, it's modern enough. By the time you get to the 17th century, you're in the modern era. I mean, it's early modern era, but, but you know, it's not. But like if you were doing one um, which I've done in, in fact, I'm doing one with uh, Gorgon Paula, which Bain has published first two books of it. This is set two, two years after the death of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And at the very first or second chapter in the book, the uptime, uh, she's retired, historian says to the people, says, you have to understand these people are not civilized. Yeah. 
And, and, and somebody says, well, but Aristotle, yeah, I, she, she said, I know, I know all that. They are not civilized, okay? Yeah. They really, they do not think the way you do. <laughs> they really, really don't. And, but you have uptimers that are providing them with a, an alternate view of things. And that, mm. it, that makes it much easier to work with. But working in the Sam Houston series, which is set in the Jacksonian era, the reason I picked Sam Houston um, was partly he was genuinely a nice guy. Um, and secondly, he, I needed a Southerner for the thing to work. And he was either for either a Southerner or Northerner, had the closest to what a modern concept of race would be um, than anybody of the time. So he, he, it's possible to work with him. And the other main character I worked with was a, uh, uh, an Irish radical, one of the men of 98 who, you know, had come over. So he had his own ways, but it's, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. And um, especially because I'm walking in a minefield in that one, because yeah. you're dealing with, with relations with Indians, with, with yeah, Africans. Yeah. Especially and these days. Yeah. Is, there's a whole lot of mythology that works in a lot of different ways. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the ultimate source of all evil is a four-word four sentence, my shit don't stink. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is, no, everybody's does. And that includes the people. One of the things you've got to be careful not to do is to infantilize Indians uh -huh. um, because, Yes, they were often victimized, but they were not victims. It's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it's that whole question of agency versus lack yeah. of agency. Yeah. And, you, and know, you, you can have agency and fail, but that's not the same as not having agency. Yeah. The way I put it to people, the shorthand way I put it is uh, how many of the Cherokee slaves died on the Trail of Tears? Um, because all the southern tribes are slave-owning tribes, they all have plantations, and they made their slaves go with them. Yeah, and nobody knows because they didn't keep track of it. Yeah. Um, and that's part of it is that yes, they they were definitely victimized, no question about it. I mean, the Trail of Tears was just horrendous. Um, but real history is not you know a comic book with with yeah, well, guys the, and the bad guys and you know um so walter was t telling me about you know there's he put some baseball references in here and such um and it it brought up the interesting thought that um you have to now that we are 20 years away from 2000 um you have two different sets of the past that you have to deal with because they can't make baseball references to anything uh, you know that's happened in recent history right? yeah. it's it's something in this series and it, it gets me more of a problem farther you go they have to be careful about which is that and don't forget there's close to 200 people writing something in this series so it's you know i mean many of them are just writing one story but people you have to keep reminding them and reminding yourself that that remember the only modern technology they have other than what they may have developed since the ring of fire themselves is whatever existed prior to may of 2000 so you know um no flash drives yeah right exactly it's things no, like that you gotta be very careful no smartphones no i no streaming media computers look like boxes on the desk well we still do i mean mine but uh <laughs> okay uh, okay i'm old-fashioned it's good uh i don't like laptops um <laughs> but yeah you do you have to be careful about not giving people technology that that some some damn nitpicker is going to say, ah, 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 that wasn't invented till the year 2007. So, Eric, have you ever considered throwing a modern day town back into Grantville? <laughs> so you have three sets of time <laughs> problems. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, 
changed is that if, if you go back and read the first novel, 1632, there's a, there's a scene where the the Crow cavalry has raided Grantville and they're charging down the street and they, they get ambushed by people firing from the streets. If you go to Mannington today, when I wrote it, that was accurate to what Mannington looked like, but they tore all that down. And if you go there now, it's all these low modern, you know, fast food joints. And that scene would not work at all. Um, so be it. But I uh, know I have not thought of doing that. And, and I'm wish you hadn't brought it up. I'll have nightmares. About it. <laughs> it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It was Deutsch who eventually put the common thought into words. I don't think you'd have any choice, sir. Misuse of our equipment would essentially pit us against the civilian population, certainly in their minds. Speaking as a citizen of Adirondack, we've already got all the opponents we need right now. Mendro nodded. I'm glad you agree. Well, for the next couple of days, you'll be off duty again. After that, we'll be running through a detailed analysis of your exam performance with each of you, showing you where and how your equipment could have been utilized more effectively. He paused and something in his face abruptly broke through the deadness surrounding Johnny's mind. That's one of the things we had to keep secret to avoid excessive self-consciousness, the commander went on. With the relatively large amount of space available in those neck-wrap computers, we were able to keep records of all your equipment usage. Almost lazily, he shifted his gaze. That alley behind the Thasser Ea bar was dark, trainee Viljo. You had to use your vision enhancers while you fought that civilian. The color drained from Viljo's face. His mouth opened, but then his eyes flicked around the group, and whatever protest or excuse he was preparing died unsaid. If you have an explanation, I'll hear it now, Mendro added. No explanation, sir, Viljo said through stiff lips. Mendro nodded. Halloran, Nofki, Singh, Deutsch. You'll escort your former teammate to the surgical wing. They already have their instructions. Dismissed. Slowly, Viljo stood up. He looked once at Johnny with empty eyes, then walked to the door with the remnants of his dignity wrapped almost visibly around him. The others, their own expressions cast in iron, followed. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tony Weiskopf and Griffin Barber, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.